societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Today's episode of the Wicked Library is brought to you exclusively by Stigmata Studios. Stigmata Studios is an independent comic studio that has been producing indie comics featuring the heroic non-standard assembly and its quirky members for over 10 years. They produce graphic novels, comic book magazines, and free web comics. Their stories feature history, the occult, politics, myth, whiskey, and violence with an edgy point of view. Red Horse Radio is the official podcast of Stigmata Studios. They talk to indie authors, artists, professional wrestlers, burlesque dancers, conspiracy theorists, podcasters, chaos magicians, and paranormal researchers. Their aim is to help get creative people who might still be tied to their cube through their day with a laugh and maybe a little inspiration. If you're a fan of the Wicked Library, you've seen the work of Stigmata Studios in the form of cover art for several episodes this season. Support Stigmata Studios by visiting them at stigmatastudios.com. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can prove that you are a supporter of independent art by making a donation to patreon.com forward slash stigmata studios. Stigmatastudios.com. Warning The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Down, John, you nearly clipped that telephone pole. Claire gripped the handle on her passenger side door. Until the last few minutes, she'd been enjoying the highland scenery, 
wondering how forlorn brown and green hills could appear so lonely, yet beautiful. Dawn had put a Scottish group on the CD player, and she'd enjoyed moments where the music helped reality fade into a reverie. Sorry, darling, Dawn said as he glanced at her. What's the hurry? You weren't driving like a lunatic before. Dawn's hands gripped the steering wheel as tightly as Claire's on the door handle. His expression had shifted from relaxed to what Claire would swear was fear. He didn't know if he dared tell his girlfriend why he'd started to race rather than just drive. The likelihood, he suspected, was that she'd think him pathetic and superstitious. Who but a fool would be scared by an old wives' tale? Earlier in the journey, his mother had called to warn him that the main route had been closed due to a petrol tanker colliding with another lorry. No way he would have been driving on this godforsaken road otherwise. Promise you won't laugh if I tell you, he finally responded. Why should I laugh? Claire said. Just humor me, okay? He said, realizing the irony of his words too late. All right, let's hear it. Dawn tapped the power button on the stereo system, cutting off a song in the middle of a rousing guitar riff. When I was a kid, the grown-ups in our village called this road Glen Swift, and they told us nobody should tarry on it. I don't think they knew exactly why. The warning probably got passed down each generation, but I've never liked this road since being told to avoid it and all the other kids used to embellish the story even further. Childish habits die hard, I guess. Claire patted his leg and gave him a reassuring smile. Please slow down a bit, or your driving might stop us getting to your village at all. The car's speed eased up a little, and Don fired the CD into life again. They had ten miles to go, and hadn't seen any other traffic since entering the glen. The narrow road swept around a valley of low hills, the land damp from recent rain, the grassy slopes fit for nothing but sheep. A stream followed the same route as the road, both using the flattest land at the bottom of the valley. The couple had been together a year. When the relationship had become stable and was leading to something long-term, Don decided to take Claire to Scotland to meet his family. From his home in southern England, it was a long and tiring journey of many hours, especially once they left the motorway at Glasgow. Did you see that telephone box? Claire asked suddenly. Don nodded. I think there was someone in it. Shouldn't we stop and see if they need help? She continued. Don shook his head. Nothing short of a roadblock or the car breaking down would make him stop on this road. He wouldn't feel comfortable until they joined the last road to his family's village. Come on, Don, this is silly. It's miles from the last town, and we should see if he needs help. But there was no changing his mind. He turned up the volume on the stereo, while Claire crossed her arms and turned to look out the window. Her lips pursed, dismayed that he'd let a superstition override his compassion. She couldn't understand it. Normally, he was the sort of person to help others. 
A couple of minutes later, he spoke. There's something I didn't tell you. My grandmother told me about Hamish, one of her neighbors who'd gone missing when traveling on Glen Swift to see a sick relative. The thing is, Hamish never came back. This was before they had phones. A few weeks later, news came that he'd been shot by a farmer's son. Apparently the boy had heard their sheep bleating frantically, and when he went out into the field, he saw dead sheep and a man chasing the rest of the flock. A frown grew on Clara's face. The occasional quaver in Don's voice as he recounted the story began to perturb her. But why did he shoot Hamish? she asked. The boy's father lay dead in the field too. In the seconds it took Don to assess her reaction, one of the front wheels hit a rock in the road. The jolt panicked him, and the car swerved with a blown tire. He stabbed at the brake, but that didn't help. The car nosed down into the shallow embankment and into the stream. Airbags popped open as the earth stopped the car dead. The twosome headbutted the temporary balloons. Don reached over to his girlfriend and put his hand on her shoulder. You're right, Claire? He asked imploringly. I think so, she said, putting a hand to her forehead and trying to focus on Don's face. A few moments passed. You need to get a grip, Don. They could have killed us. Oh no, he said, scared by what had happened, and even more scared of the thought of being stuck in the glen without a car. Your nose is bleeding, she added. Oh, he replied, wiping the blood with the back of his hand and rubbing it on the now deflated airbag. Claire reached down into her handbag in the seat well. She grunted and rubbed the back of her neck. Whiplash. A brief rummage found her mobile phone. She waved it around, trying to get a signal. There is no signal, Don stated. Yeah, how did you know? Not surprising. Lots of places like this in Scotland don't have any coverage. He turned the ignition key. The engine turned over a few times, but didn't fire up. Come on, he said, banging the steering wheel with his hands and turning the key again and again and pumping the accelerator. Still, the engine didn't catch. Shit! he shouted. Don got out of the car. Slipping on a rounded stone, he managed to retain his balance in the uneven stream bed. The water added its own chill to that of the situation. His right ankle hurt, his foot having scoured off the brake pedal by the jolt of the car being stopped abruptly. He scanned the road and landscape, anxious to confirm that they were alone. He hadn't noticed the tenseness in his shoulders until he relaxed them slightly, relieved that no one was in the vicinity. Safe for the time being, he returned to the car at the passenger side. Press the bonnet release button. I'll check the engine. The position of the car, nosed into the ground, made opening the bonnet awkward. He had to squat on the damp earth, resting his feet on the bumper while he fumbled for the catch. Despite not knowing much about cars, he spotted a problem when he finally got the bonnet up. 
an empty water coolant reservoir. Even if he tried the engine again and it started, it would soon overheat, and the chances of reversing out of the stream and up the wet ground were slim anyhow. He let the bonnet drop. We'd better go back to the phone box and call for help, said Claire, who got out of the car and sidled up to Don to hug him. No, we walk. It's only a few hours walk to the village. Don't be silly. The phone box is closest. Don't tell me you're afraid just because we saw someone in it. Heard at the accusation, but knowing it was true, Don went to the rear of the car. He opened the hatch, removed their luggage, and lifted the carpet to retrieve the wheel brace kept next to the spare wheel. He slapped it into the palm of his other hand a couple of times to check that it would make a solid enough weapon. Then he put the luggage back and got a torch out of the glove box before locking the car. Sunset was no more than an hour away. The sun bathed the glen in a soft light. Their shadows stretched eerily along the empty road. Don't worry, I'll protect you, Claire said, trying to lighten the mood when she realized Don was serious about taking a weapon. For once, she wished that he was the kind of man to show some bravado. Look, sweetheart, I know you think I'm overreacting, but there's something not right about this, Glenn, and I'm not taking any chances. Okay, okay, let's get going then. A plague of midges appeared soon after they'd emerged from the car, a swirling cloud of tiny nuisances. Claire tried batting them away with the flat of her hands, but soon gave up. Don returned to the car and got a bottle of insect repellent out of one of the bags. Here, spray yourself with this, he said, handing the bottle to Claire. They held hands. Claire squeezed a little harder as she felt Don's hand trembling. She'd never seen him this nervous before. Anyone would think they were walking down a dark alley filled with muggers. Despite his reluctance to encounter, let alone go anywhere near the man in the phone box, Don kept up a brisk pace. He planned to get there while it was still light and he could see what they were dealing with. He's gone, Claire said, pulling at Don's hand to grab his attention. As they'd rounded a bend, they could see the red phone box a couple of hundred yards away. Empty. Nobody in sight. Creases appeared on Don's forehead. I don't like this. If there was someone in there calling for help, they should still be there. Unless someone picked them up, went back the way they came. That's probably it, Claire replied. Let's go and ring your parents or breakdown service. Yeah, that's probably it, Don said, unsure. He kept looking around, trying to convince himself there was nothing to worry about. Doubt reigned. His instinct forged by the childhood tales about this glen wouldn't be pacified. As they neared it, Don ran to the phone box. He flung open the door and stepped inside. Fuck! he shouted. A metal tube that encased the handset cable hung down. The handset gone. That's it. We've got to walk as quickly as possible to the village. Don said when Claire caught up to him. He pulled Claire away from the phone box and explained what he'd found. 
We could wait in the car until someone comes past, she said. No, we get out of this glen as fast as we can. Hardly anyone uses this road. The hills took on a russet tinge as the sun continued to drift towards the landscape. Don's ankle forced him to walk slower than he felt comfortable with. A man stepped out of their car as they came level with it. He had a bald and unnaturally smooth head, his skin waxy and his face only partially defined, as though it was in the process of being finished by a wax modeler. Oh, Christ, Don said. Realization dawned. He must have doubled back behind the hill when we went to the phone box. The unmade man strode towards them. His right hand held out menacingly. Claire backed up. Don tightened his grip on the wheel brace. He passed the torch to Claire and told her to head to the village while he tackled the man. The thing. Whatever it was. No, I'm staying with you. Also backing away, he kissed her hard and quickly. Just go. I'll distract this thing. It'll be all right, he said in as assertive a manner as he could muster. He pushed her and gestured for her to skirt along the hillside. The man ignored her and fixated on Don, who continued to walk backwards so he could check that Claire got away safely. When he was convinced that Claire had enough distance between them, he turned and began to jog, wincing and continually peering over his shoulder. The man followed and sped up too. A few minutes later, Don turned around suddenly and swiped his weapon at the man's head. The man jerked, and the wheel brace missed its target by inches. In that moment, the man snatched at Don's jacket. Don lowered his head and plunged into the assailant, his face red with the effort of trying to topple the man. Both men fell over. Don landed on top of the waxy man, who still gripped his jacket. The wheel brace clattered on the road as Don let it go to break the fall with his hands. He had no choice but to look closely at the waxy man. Their heads were only inches apart. Features had started to appear on its face. Wisps of hair on its head and where eyebrows should be. Nose and mouth a little more defined than before. A thin rash of blood colored the tarmac where its head had banged in the fall. Not used to violence, Don wanted to puke. He parried the awkward arm movements of the man-like thing and shoved it in the chest, forcing it to the floor. His breathing labored with the effort as he prized clutching fingers off his jacket. Free, he stood up and swayed briefly. His eyes darted left and right, trying to locate the weapon. There it was, just a few inches away. He snatched it up and carried on running in the same direction, hoping to lure the attacker further away from Claire. An RAF jet roared across the sky. Don glanced up to see it disappear beyond a hill before he could wave in distress. His chaser, oblivious to the jet, took no notice. It didn't take long for Don to slow down as he developed a limp, the pounding of foot on tarmac taking its toll on his ankle. In his early 30s and not overweight... He wasn't particularly fit anyway. 
though he enjoyed hiking and the occasional swim at the local pool. He decided to turn off the road and onto the hill, hoping that the softer ground would be less traumatic on his bad foot. I better make it to the Bothy and in Verlish where I can rest. The ground, not too slippery as the hill at this point, had a modest slope, made a welcome change from the tarmac. He scurried up, taking care not to lose his only weapon. At the crest of this section of the hill, he dared to look back. His pursuer, also breathing hard, followed relentlessly. A few small rocks littered the ground. He bent down to grab one and threw it at the chasing abomination. It missed. He lobbed another, which also missed its target. Shit. What the fuck are you? He shouted. No answer. No prayers could help him now. The indifferent landscape held no solace and bore no favorites. Whether he stuck to the easier route of valleys or tried to wear his chaser down by going over hills, he'd eventually be too knackered to carry on without a rest. He opted for the valleys, having a rough idea of the direction to the Bothy. Behind him, the waxy man's features continued to coalesce into a recognizable human face. A couple of times, Dawn glanced back. Stunned and fight, an inner voice urged. But the shocking wrongness of the pursuer cracked his nerves. No, run and keep on running, the rest of his instinct insisted. He did. Surrounding peaks became sullen shadows in the twilight. Dawn's pace slowed to a walk, each footstep flaring up pain in his ankle. Eventually, he spotted the Bothy, a crouching square of blackness on the flat ground no more than a quarter mile away. Nearby, the dark ruins of the hamlet of Inverlish littered the landscape. Lungs burned and ankle pain screamed for him to stop. He pushed on, hopping every few steps to take the weight off his bad foot, his nemesis gradually closing the gap. With only yards between them, Don made it to the Bothy door. He almost swung in with the momentum, dropping the wheel brace and twisting around to slam the door. It was a small stone Bothy with no windows. In the darkness, he had to fumble up and down the wooden door till he found a bolt and rammed it into the hole. The door shook as the man outside tried to shoulder it open. When Don was confident that the door would hold, he slumped to the floor and sobbed. For what seemed like hours, but was only minutes, the door continued to rattle at regular intervals. Then, it stopped. Don felt his way around the building like someone playing blind man's bluff. Bigger than my living room, he guessed. He couldn't feel any sleeping platforms or other amenities. Just four walls, a roof, and a door. Exhausted, he pissed in a corner and then curled up on the cold floor at the opposite end away from the door. Shaking, he desperately hoped that Claire would reach the village. If she had managed to call the police, would they have the manpower in this sparsely populated area to mount a proper search for him at night? He doubted it. 
sleep came slowly and reluctantly, and only then for one torment to be replaced by another. Dreams, the cold, and discomfort dogged his sleep. He dreamt of Claire. She walked away from him on the road, her lovely long red hair billowing in the breeze. When he shouted to her, she pulled off a wig and turned around to reveal a waxy, indistinct face. Donna woke to a gray outline around the edge of the door. Daylight. Fitful sleep and lack of food and water left him weak, yet he knew it had to be now or never. Being chased again was no longer an option. Shivering, he got up from the floor and did some stretches. A night without a bed and a damp stone hut had left his body aching all over. You've got to fight the fucking thing outside, and then you'll have enough time to get to the village. As gently as possible, Don pulled back the door bolt. It squeaked. Wielding the wheel brace, he pulled the door open and stepped back, ready to swing the metal at anything that tried to venture inside. Nothing moved in the portion of the landscape framed by the opening. He rushed through the door and continued for several yards before stopping and looking back. The remains of a figure lay slumped at the Bothy's wall. Putrescent gobs of flesh oozed from the holes in its clothes. Dawn wretched. He tried to process what had happened the previous day, but it was too bizarre to make any sense of. Heading back to the road, he stopped frequently to suck dew off the grass. His right ankle had swollen further in the night, so he kept up a gentle walking pace rather than a march. Can't be more than ten miles to get out of Glen Swift. Maybe seven hours, if I can keep up this pace. Finally, the road came into view, and nectar the stream that ran beside it. He stuck his head into the stream and gulped in the cold water. Thirst quenched, he trudged on. Before long, he reached their car, still stuck in the stream. He checked inside. Nobody there. The car keys were still in his pocket. He opened the rear door and dug out a bar of chocolate, the only thing remaining from their packed lunch. He scoffed it in a few seconds and continued on. Often he surveyed the road behind him, hoping for a rescuer and dreading what he might see instead. Sometimes he could see so much road snaking into the distance that he tapped his watch, believing it was running slow, minutes dilated into hours again. As the morning wore on, his speed diminished and he took more frequent breaks. Shooting pains in his ankle were harder to bear. The pain and solitude sapped his will, and he fought back more tears. Where are the police and volunteers who should be looking for me? 10 a.m. 11 a.m. Still no bloody help? What the hell happened to Claire? Then, was that a breakdown truck heading his way? 
Maybe a mile away, a vehicle with orange flashing lights on its roof came into view, where the road curved out of sight. He waved his arms above his head, as if the driver could miss him on this otherwise deserted road. As it got closer, he could be sure that was a breakdown truck. But something didn't make sense. Claire was driving. The truck came to a halt a few feet away, and she got out. Dawn wanted to rush to her, to hug her, to kiss her, to cry like a baby in her arms. A qualm held him back. How come you're driving? And where's the breakdown guy? He asked. He had to run. What do you mean, run? Come here. We're together again. Isn't that what you want? Claire added, stepping forward and holding her arms out to embrace him. Her arms clamped around his shoulders while her jaws articulated, opening impossibly wide. Needle-like teeth telescoped out of her gums. His attempt to pull free was too late. Her movements were fast and decisive. That inhuman maw was the last thing he saw. His scream lasted hardly any time at all. Moments later, a wax-like figure emerged from the truck. He'd been hidden below the dashboard. Together, he and the woman lugged Don's body off the road and placed it face down in the stream. By the time they were done, Don's imposter had finished forming. He looked just like the real thing. This episode is missing one of the things you guys really enjoy, which is an interview with the author. Don't fret, though. It was just a scheduling conflict with Dean. Dean's in the UK and I'm in the US, so it just didn't work out this time. However, Dean has sent me an additional short story and is also going to be interviewing next weekend. So, for those of you who are subscribed to our newsletter, you will actually get a bonus episode that includes a bonus story from Dean, as well as his interview with the Wicked Library. If you haven't already signed up for the newsletter, what's wrong with you? Go over to thewickedlibrary.com and sign up today. We feature a bonus story every month. We have other great content for our readers. And this time, you're going to get not only a story, but an interview with Dean a month before everybody else. If you enjoyed today's episode, tune in again next week. We're going to have another great one for you. Today's episode featured a story by Dean Bebbington, Glenn Swift. If you'd like more information on Dean and his work, please visit deanbebbington.co.uk. You can also find him on his Amazon page, and he does have a Facebook page out there. You can go directly to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash Dean, that's D-E-N-E dash Bebbington, and that will be all his information, as well as the other two episodes of The Wicked Library where Dean has appeared. Artwork for today's show was created by Stephen Matico. If you'd like more information on Steve and his work, please visit wideeyedotter.com. And follow him on Twitter at S underscore Matico. Big thanks to Owl Going Back for a great story last week. 
and to John Towers of Stigmata Studios for the kick-ass art. Don't forget to visit John online at stigmatastudios.com. And if you'd like to support independent art, specifically John's independent art, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash stigmata studios. Please share the terror, share the show, help us grow. Tell a friend or maybe that weird guy that wanders around in the woods next to your house about the show. Aside from that, the best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, and tune in wherever you listen to the show. And don't forget the big Wicked Library Halloween special is coming up in two weeks on Halloween. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rousick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com or Purple Planet Music. See the show notes for links and details. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 616. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It gives your skin a nice waxy glow. It rubs the wax on its skin. It does this when it's cold. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.